Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 96. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Tim Stamus. He's Sovereign Man's Chief Investment Officer based in the Asia-Pacific region. He invests his own capital and writes at globalvaluehunter.com. So, Tim, we've got an image of blue sky and sandy beaches. Not exactly. I'm sort of more in a jungle sort of environment. Right. Equally interesting. I don't interesting. know how well you know Bali, but um, lots of people like it for the, the beaches and the surf. And um, lots of people also like it for the, the sort of um, inland sort of temples and jungle and, and local culture. But we live right down the south, so we're actually not far from the beach, uh, but we're sort of on a plateau a bit elevated above sea level keeps it a bit cooler it's quite nice is what 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 was it that attracted you to the area um i've lived in asia in various places uh oh going on 25 years now um and i've never actually been to bali until oh must have been 2012 something like that and i came here and i thought well Hmm. It's got quite an interesting vibe about it. It's, it's a little bit like um, the far north of Queensland. I grew up in Queensland in Australia. I was detecting um, a bit of an accent there. But yeah, yeah. My mother's British, so I, I you know, my, my accent kind of flip flops a bit. Um, but in in the north of Queensland, um, it's very similar. It's sort of a six months wet season, six months dry season, and you know the latitude isn't much different. But the wages are about thirty times higher. Mm. Um, so people here earn in a month what people in Australia earn in a day. So the cost of good goods and services here is is very uh, competitive. Um, compared to, for example, Hong Kong, which is my normal base uh, in Asia for, for business purposes. Um, and the, the people are just very friendly and laid back and, you know, it just kind of suited me. Sounds, sounds <laughs> like, like the ideal secret location, but you've now, you've now told that to the world. So expect more people. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, how, would you describe, how would you describe your day job now? What, what, what's, what, what is your day job comprised, Tim? Much like you, you know, I'm an investment geek, as you know, and um, I follow the markets closely. All I really need is a computer and an internet connection. Um, but I sort of meander up from the downstairs bedroom pavilion up to my office up here about 7 a.m., which is 9 a.m. in Australia. The markets in Australia normally open at 10. Um it varies when Australia's on summertime. Um, can be a three-hour difference, but at the moment it's two hours. So I'm an early riser and I get an early start. I sort of check what emails have come in overnight, whether there's anything interesting from colleagues or clients and all the usual stuff. Check the uh, the papers online and, and then log into um, you know, one of my brokerage accounts platforms platforms and start monitoring the sort of announcements uh, to the Australian Stock Exchange, basically. So are you actually trading or are you analyzing and trading? I wear a couple of different hats. Um, I like to buy undervalued securities and, and flip them much in the sort of traditional Ben Graham style. Um, if there's something really cheap, it doesn't necessarily have to be a great company. If it's going to be, you know, revalued, then I'll, I'll flick it for a trade. Um, I, I've also done a lot of risk arbitrage, takeover arbitrage in my time. So I'm always scouring for sort of announced takeover bids where I can buy in underneath the announced price and then um, hopefully hold on until the deal closes and, and, make a spread that way uh so i have a couple of trading strategies but then ultimately what i'd prefer to do um especially as i get older is is just to buy stuff and invest for keeps i've taken to calling it so you know monitoring um for prices on on good investments that i'd like to own that once they come into the buy zone, just buy them and tuck them away and hold them, which I guess is more of your your Buffett style. But yeah, very much a value bent. I mean, I'm not a 
momentum guy or a growth guy in, in any way, shape or form. Do you manage any money for external clients or is this, this all effectively person, personal investing? It's mostly for myself. And I mean, I, I've been basically a professional investor making my living from investing myself and writing about it as, as you do um, since well, the late 1990s. Uh, that said, I do manage a few sort of individual accounts uh, for, for some clients. Uh, and I've long harbored ambitions to, to start a fund. Um, and I was sort of quite close to pulling the trigger on it. And then this coronavirus stuff came along and everything's kind of been parked. It's quite difficult to get people to commit capital at this point. Um, ironically, because this is the sort of time when, when they should probably be looking at getting into the markets, um, given that things are starting to appear cheap. But human nature being what it is, um, you know, people are sort of scared and, and reluctant to pull the trigger. So I've, I've kind of, you know, pulled back from that temporarily. But we have the infrastructure in place now. We've um, a partner and I have set up a business in Australia that is licensed to manage funds, which obviously is a first step. But as you probably know, Tim, the, you know the the whole licensing gig and and all the regulations and hoops you have to jump through, it, it does make managing money. Uh, much more of a pain in the bum than it used to be, you know, back in the glory days when guys like Soros were setting up their hedge funds. Um, it, it really is quite a compliance burden. And I, I even had a, a guy in Hong Kong who was sort of writing a blog about starting a hedge fund. He, his comment was, if you like managing money and doing research, don't start a fund because you won't have time to do any of that. You'll be, yeah. you'll be you know, spending all your time on compliance. So it's a bit of a, um, you know, a tussle between those two. There's a guy we know uh, who works for CLSA in London, uh, which is a, a, effectively an, a, an Asian parent company, but he's based in London. He said uh, he has a quite nice line in this. He says that when he started, <clears throat> there were basically three people and a compliance officer. Now there's one person and three compliance officers. <laughs> and the, the, the rate of the rate of expansion is going to be solely populated by compliance people in the not too distant future. Oh, and it's quite ridiculous, really. And I mean, I understand that you don't want to have things like Madoff happening again, but it's really gone far too far overboard in the other direction, quite frankly. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the, the trends that I've sort of been anticipating is, uh, you know, reaching and then you know, going past the high watermark in the, in the fortunes of, of passive investments and ETFs. Do you see any, do you see what's happening in the markets right now as potentially having any impact on that or is, is the, the trend to passive going to continue? Um, it's sort of up in the air for me. I mean, I, I write uh, frequently about how, you know, idiotic uh, the very idea of investing in an in, uh, index fund is to me. But then you've got guys like Warren Buffett saying that he, you know, recommends it wholeheartedly, mainly because it means that the fees are low and, mm. you know, your your little helpers aren't, aren't ripping too much money out. Um, so, I mean, I, I do get that argument. Uh, but if you examine um, – most of these indices, the the constituents are just not good. And, you know, there's one school of thought that says that um, the people who have sort of borne the brunt of the coronavirus shutdowns in the US and lost their jobs and so on, they're not the sort of people that are contributing to 401ks and investing in stock markets. And all the people that do, they've sort of still got their jobs and their companies are still pumping the money in, although I did see some uh, companies have had to cut back on that. So the, the passive train, you know, continues unabated um, in some respects. And this concentration of <coughs> money into things that keep going up just because they've already gone up is, is what I quite find, you know, quite scary, really. I mean, we're, we're back at sort of the same concentration levels we saw just prior to the dot-com crash. And, you know, I'm old enough to have lived through that. Um Top five stocks accounting for more than twenty percent of the S and P. I mean, it's it's quite scary, really. I was speaking to a an investor just a few hours ago, and he was making the point that if you look at the, the nature, the the recent returns of stock indices around the world, it's like March never happened. It's like what on earth is going on? I mean, do you think the rally? Do you think the rally has any any legitimacy, or is it is it all delusional activity on behalf of uh, professional and and I dare say day traders? <laughs> Look, I don't know. I mean, it's it's quite staggering uh, how strong the bid is in the markets. Um, but then I've, you know, I'm I'm a fairly objective guy, so I, I I try and look at it from the other point of view as well. And the only thing I can surmise is that there's 
people who are running models where, you know, maybe they're discounted cash flow models and they've got 20 years of, of you know, forward earnings plugged in there, which is what uh, – 12 months a year, 20 years, or was that 240 months or something? And they've just said, well, okay, let's assume that three months of cash flow don't materialize and it's zero. Uh, so we've now got 237 months rather than 240, and therefore it's just a tiny adjustment in, in the overall valuation of the company. Um, and it justifies, you know, what a Two percent correction or something. So that that's one thing I could see possibly being at work, um, especially if there's a lot of algorithmic stuff going on. The other thing is when you use very low interest rates for your discount rates in DCF models, you, you get some very strange outcomes. Um, basically, you know that the cash flows way out in the future ordinarily in a normal interest rate world would be discounted quite heavily. And it's your near-term earnings that make up by far the greatest part of the valuation. But in the world we're in now, with interest rates near zero, that doesn't really apply. Like the the current quarter is almost no different in terms of its con contribution to the DCF model to a quarter 10 years out if you're only using a very low discount rate. You see what I mean? So sure. I can understand that that might be at work. Um but given the level of uncertainty about future cash flows, I mean, I, I think that's absurd. You know, you, you should be increasing your discount rate. So it's kind of a tug of war, I think, between those those things. Um, but yeah, it, it's really quite uh, quite eye opening um, how quickly the market has bounced, and you know, no one seems to be worried. But I suppose uh, you know, it, it's all to do with the Fed. The Fed's got your back. Uh, mm. But don't don't fight the Fed. I think it's called now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can see that. But I mean, yeah, I don't know about you, but that just doesn't seem like investing. I mean, it seems like front-running the Fed. Um, it's not really what I want to be doing. <laughs> In the end, what what else is what else can one do other than that? It, it feels like slightly. How can I put it? Like you're 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 falling. You could be walking straight into a trap all the time because it's almost like it's too it's too obvious. If they're just going to keep gaming the market higher, then what's the point of trying to trying to short it, knowing that it's all yeah. just company buying yeah. companies buying back, but or whatever. But if it's working, yeah. what can you do? The only the only thing is, if they about turn on it, the, the market's going to crash, and they. Obviously, they're they're not saying they're going to do that unless unless something else happens. And having given this quite a lot of thought, my my feeling, and I wonder what you think about this: if they lose if they lose control of inflation, and by that I mean not just gold and and precious metals, but if they start to lose control of the the price of oil and the price of raw commodities, mm -hmm. then they're going to have a massive problem on their hands. And I think until that happens, they can just do what they want. But we all know that you can't just you can't get energy out of thin air. It just doesn't work in physics. This getting money out of thin air can only work until people stop believing in the money that's appearing from thin air. And so what could be a second order problem at some stage is, say, oil going back up to $100. And if that was the case, what on earth would they do? So at the moment, it doesn't look like there's a problem and we've got to potentially buy this dip. But I, I'm keeping a strong eye on, on these commodity prices. Yeah, um, I too have been thinking about, you know, the possibility of cost push inflation, I guess, is the, the term that I would have learned to call it in, in economics. Um, and I actually did a lot of deep thinking recently about this whole inflation, deflation um, debate, if you like, um, you guys, you guys probably know I write the fourth pillar newsletter over at um, Sovereign Man, and the latest issue I wrote there, I actually um, put some thoughts down on on this whole inflation deflation um, debate. And you know, in a in a traditional economy, um, in an industrial economy, um, inflation starts to show up when you've got resource constraints. Um, you know, wages uh, the labor gets to full employment and people demand higher wages and all the resources are being allocated to produce stuff. And if there's too much money in the system, then there's no way um, other than for prices to go up. So that's the sort of framework that we learnt um, 
in economics in, in university. Uh, I have a degree in economics as well. Thankfully, I studied other stuff as well that was more interesting. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> ancient Asian history and Korean language and, and things like that. Um, Excellent. But then, yeah, then I then I got thinking about well, you know, do we really live in that sort of an economy anymore? And we we probably don't. Um, You know, a lot of the products and services that people consume nowadays um, are quite different from what they were in an industrial economy, and there aren't really the same resource constraints for a lot of these things. Um, You know, software is basically a zero marginal cost good uh, once it's created you know you can sell it a billion times over without you know running out of resources to keep producing it um even things like uber and airbnb and so they're very deflationary forces and i thought of you know well maybe what the fed and all the other central banks have been doing by pumping all this money into the system since the last crash is really just fighting off the deflationary forces but then there's plenty of inflation in other areas. So I think, you know, maybe it's sort of a, a cognitive mistake that we have that we're focused on one inflation number. You know, everyone's inflation rate really is quite different depending on what they spend their money on. You know, if you're talking about health insurance or private school fees or, or things like that, um, you know, the, the prices have gone through the roof. Uh, but many other things uh, have gone the other direction, you know taxi rides, Uber and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, short-term holiday rentals, you know, the, the deflationary forces of these um, software, um, you know, innovations uh, are very real. Um, but I take your point about areas of the economy where there are genuine resource constraints like commodities and, and so on. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's no reason why you can't have inflation going on in one area and, and sort of deflationary forces prevailing in another. The thing that, that in, in, intrigues me about, and you've already alluded to it, is is I'm surprised more people aren't sceptical about the role of central banks, given that for the last roughly 40 years, all that's been required is for them to, if in doubt, cut rates. So if the stock market has a problem, cut rates. If there's a problem in the real economy or the financial sector, just cut rates. So the reason why I <clears throat> venerate Volcker over any other Fed chairman of the last half century is he's the only one who ever had the balls to raise rates. Because everybody else, certainly since Greenspan, has said, well, if in doubt, cut. Well, that's got us to zero. And in some central bank in context of less than zero. So as you sort of you know alluded to earlier, what happens when these guys have to put rates up? Because now you'd argue they can't. It's, it's physically impossible because it would crash the system so profoundly. So it's like, when, when, <coughs> excuse me, when, does, when do you get to that tipping point when, say, commodity prices are rising, classic, you know, traditional goods and services inflation is on the way up. And the thing they have to do is, is put rates up. But everybody knows if they put rates up, they're going to crash a hugely over-levered, you know, over-indebted system. It's like uh, this is this is just a. It's like you've, the, the the shell game has run run the end of its course. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, there's just no way that, given the quantity of debt outstanding, that um, it can be serviced at higher rates. Uh, so, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. There's a similar knock-on effect for the likes of Tesla and maybe Netflix and all these kind of like high-concept. Stocks, which have only re, you could argue, have only really come about because it's the kind of nonsense that gets funded in a zero rate environment with free money. Once rates actually go up, then all of a sudden, so you get to proper game changer, you know, environment. Then that's also the point about Uber as well, because if you think about Uber, your your fixed cost is you have to buy fuel, and even if you've got an electric car, there will be a cost of that fuel. And so, if if petrol price, if if the oil price goes to two hundred dollars. Then it doesn't. It doesn't matter how efficient you are. You still have a big input cost, and therefore that's got to be passed on, even with technology. I mean, yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, the uranium markets started taking off uh, recently, and you know, I don't think there's any cheap, abundant uh, energy source that's going to last us forever. That's for sure. Um, so yeah, you know, resource constraints. Going back to that idea, uh, are definitely still, um, you know, very much a part of the equation. Um, and you know, are, are these sort of so-called technology companies really technical? Um, not really. They're they're just 
a way of doing something traditional in a slightly different way using a better mousetrap, a lot of them. Um, so it's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, I think the whole, you know, tech this and tech that. Um, but, yeah, going back to Tim's point about stuff that shouldn't be funded getting funded, um, that's also very much what happened in this last cycle since uh, the GFC with all the cheap money and then the sort of boom in startups. And I actually, uh, I was watching a, a thing on the Japanese bubble economy um, this afternoon in the Twitter sphere. There's been a thing going around recently. The documentary is called Princes of the Yen. Princes as in prince, prince plural. Just seen it and uh, I sent a link to Tim. Yeah. <laughs> You have go. you seen no, it, Tim? I haven't seen it yet. No, I know, I know of it, but <laughs> yeah, you should watch it, Tim. Uh, yep. So basically, um, you know, it was the way that I squared the circle, if you like, back to these these startups is that um, Japanese conglomerates back when they got going, um, you know, they were funded by basically unlimited quantities of money being pumped into the in, into the economy at the direction of the Ministry of Finance. The BOJ was doing it, but it was this under is, the MOF. This is the, uh, the, the Kairetsu, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, they didn't compete uh, based on profitability because they were being given all this free money. The name of the game was just to sort of scale up and compete for market share. Yeah. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Um, yes. Yes, it's it's fascinating. It's a brilliant documentary, and it's re- it it raised a question that I actually wanted to ask both of you. You know, when when we start to think about debt numbers, and and at some point, who can get their head ra- around how much debt there actually is? What is the difference between the US being, you know, having sort of eighty, ninety, hundred percent of GDP, and two hundred percent or or more, or three hundred percent? I don't even know what the figure is in Japan, but I, I'm guessing it's over there. Um, if it if it doesn't appear to make any difference, should we really be worried about it? I've been thinking the same thing. Um, I had a conversation with someone else yesterday along these lines. I think the number in Japan is in the order of 270% of GDP um, at the moment. And the U.S. is, I think, maybe just over 100, uh, given the recent acceleration. So it's a long way off Yeah, uh, the same sort of number. Um, but, but the point is, what do these numbers mean? It's a bit, I remember people saying to me, the Big Mac Index, when I was in the bank in 92, 93, and they were saying, yeah, you know, if you use the Big Mac Index, the yen is overvalued by 20%. I was like, well, what does that actually mean? Because it goes, it's over overvalued by thirty percent, and it's overvalued by forty percent, and it's overvalued by fifty percent. And what at what point does this become a number that the market is going to react to? And it, and I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm kind of taking the other, the other side of this because I don't think having a lot of debt is a good thing, and there will be a price to pay. But saying that two hundred seventy percent of GDP is a bad number, and a hundred percent of GDP is a bad number, doesn't it doesn't mean anything to me because. It doesn't seem to make any difference whether it's three hundred or five hundred percent. The market doesn't seem to be reacting to it. What um, I what I would re- respond, Paul, is that it, it partly depends on who owns the debt. So, in the context of Japan, although Japan, you know, the Japanese government bond market is is the perennial bug in search of a windshield. The reality <laughs> is that, that that's nearly all domestically owned. So, in other words, Japan isn't dependent on the kindness of strangers to 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 fund its debt in the same way that the US is. But the other, there's another point to this, which is where it brings in a European dimension that both Japan and the US are in control of their own printing press. So, in as much as you know, yen debt or dollar debt are that meaningful, both central banks could just print until the cows come home, or yes. until until creditors refuse to accept the money anymore. And same, at some same point, as I think the UK, may, and the same as the UK. Yeah. But of course, the UK would not have that privilege if it was part of the eurozone. So, yes. what are the best? The best things that ever happened to us was never joining that damn project in the first place. Whereas, yeah. for example, Italy, well, they can't print their way out of this mess. Yes. So if anything is likely to bring the Eurozone project to, to a, let's say, a religious level experience, it's the fact that you've got some very heavily indebted member states and they've got no way out of it. This is like a, you know, a doomsday machine for them. For anybody who is pro-Europe, I suggest watching the documentary, The Princes of the Yen. 
And mm. if they're not going to watch it from the beginning, because I can understand it's very much for people like us, but you can jump forward to the section where they start talking about the ECB. Tell me what you think. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I think they'll have a very different view about what on earth is going on. Well, they've just, you, you've just, you know, with you just this land, landmark legal decision in Germany, where the, the German courts basically thrown into the air the validity of ECB uh, policy. Have you, have, you been, have, you, have you heard about that? Could you tell us, Tim? I, I've not seen that. Just and for the viewers, who, listeners who haven't heard about it. T- Tim S, give us your take on, on that. Well, basically, it was a, a challenge in Germany as to the legality of, of the programs that they've implemented. And it, it looks like they're on solid ground, you know, taking um, the central bank to court for you know, doing illegal things. I mean, I, I think the same argument can be made um, against the Fed, although no one's had the balls to do it yet. Um, so interesting times. The Fed seems to find workarounds, like, uh, you know, they can't can't legally buy junk bonds, but they can set up special purpose vehicles for their mates at BlackRock and then delegate mm. the task to them. You know, I mean, it's, it's really quite a bit. I mean, if Goldman Sachs <laughs> can find a way to get the Greek economy into the Eurozone to pass the Maastricht Treaty, anything is possible. <laughs> yeah. Financial engineering at its best. What, what was your take on it, Tim? It's exactly the same. I mean, I haven't said it in detail, but I've been reading uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard in the Telegraph and reading some of the FT coverage. And the FT is, needless to say, shocked because they can see the, the whole project sort of just, you know, collapsing in flames. Whereas Ambrose Evans Pritchard is gleefully sort of pouring kerosene on the fire as he talks about it. So it depends on your point of view. But this is, again, this is, I mean, I hate to overuse this phrase, but it's potentially game changing stuff. That previously, the sort of the, EC, the ECB has been a juggernaut, basically doing whatever it takes to use Mario Draghi's phrase, and and this has just put a, a sudden you know roadblock in the right in the middle of that. Yes. So all bets you get the feeling that all bets are off now. That the, you know the the endless eurozone bailouts maybe aren't as endless as they they previously seemed. We're working on the presumption that markets are are not just efficient but rational, and I think you can make a case for a. You know the the current rally being more than a little delusional, as, as, as Tim Stemos has already suggested, and B they they've yet to price in the full impact of what happens if this German uh, court decision is upheld and validated. It it can't be. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not going to be, is it? I mean, let's just face it. There's just no. Well, you, way. You, you say that, but if you're a German, um, you know, investor or worker, why 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 would you just continually support bailing out? You know, Greek pensioners. Well, if they, well, exactly. But that's the whole problem with the eurozone in the first place. I don't know why they wanted it. So, so, um, but if that happens, that's it. That's it. Literally, that's the end of the project. I mean, come on, they they can't they can't op- they can't move forward if if this if this is upheld. That is literally the end. Yeah, they need to find a way of fudging it yet again. Um, which you know, game's got to be up at some point. And as you say, the the political backlash. Um, at, at some stage, you know, I mean, it's usually the Dutch and the, the Germans that seem to, to get the blame, quote unquote, from the, the Southern Europeans um, whenever there's you know, money to be handed out and they, they sort of refuse. Um, but at some point, you'd think that the, the average voter in these places is going to tell their politicians that the game is up, um, you know, as happened in the UK. Why can't it happen elsewhere? Yeah, that'd be my take on it. Yes, that's that's a very interesting point, and one that I've wondered a lot about over the years. Where you'd think that there'd be the political will for change, and and the country that I thought was going to be the first out was was Italy, but it always seems to be that there seems to be some promise of money or something that that keeps the whole project together, and so we don't know how long that's going to ever last for. As as again, we've said on previous podcasts, it's. You can know something's going to happen, but putting a time frame on it is virtually impossible. So it could be another year, it could be another ten years, for all we know. But we do know yeah, that it's in, in its current in its current shape. It just it seems to be limping along, and uh, and I, I on quite honestly that I'm quite shocked by this uh, this report that you're talking about, Tim Price, because it's uh, I, if something like that were to these things could often take you know many years to go through court anyway, but. It, but something like that is a strong message that the, that the Germans are very unhappy. And if they are unhappy, then I can't see it working. Yeah, watch this space. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell us about where, where you write and what sort of stuff is in there for what sort of what sort of reader? I've written a 
a paid newsletter product uh, for Sovereign Man. That's SovereignMan.com for for many years, and I also contribute occasionally to the um, the daily that we send out to anyone that wants to get it. Um, although less so in in recent years, uh, and it, it's a US centric um, sort of, I guess, libertarian orientated. Uh, newsletter basically pointing out all the idiotic mistakes of politicians and central banks and governments which isn't hard i mean there's that many of them it's a good it's a good job it must be sent electronically because otherwise you'd be running out of paper by now (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly um so that that's one forum uh but then i recently uh set up something that i've called global value hunter um global value hunter all one word dot com um and i'm on twitter there as well i've, I've only just entered the twitter sphere um oh, really? Tim Price, i know you've you've been there for a long time and it's one of your favorite things yes the handle is at Global value hunt. I had to, to truncate it. Um, so that's, that's been a lot of fun and um, caught up with some some old friends and colleagues and, and met, met some new ones. Um, but the idea there is basically just to share some of my sort of 25 years of value investing experience and you know, just general anecdotes about life around the world and investing around the world. And um, you know, we, we talked about funds earlier, and I do, as I say, have a fund uh, in mind that I want to pull the trigger on if I can put up with the compliance um, and bureaucracy. Uh, and that would be the forum where I would like to sort of drum up interest. And then the idea basically is that I think that if you go to the sort of more exotic, uh, out-of-the-way markets around the world, there are still economies where things are quite normal and interest rates are in double digits and you know people save and invest and basic industries are still growing. And these are not markets that the average you know, UK or US or even Australian investor is, is going to go into. Um, I mean – Talk about index funds. You you can buy exposure to the uh, MSCI All World Country Index for about thirty basis points in management fees a year. Now that's an index fund, obviously, but I mean, how how can a fund manager compete with that? Uh, so my take on it was, well, what are these index funds not investing in? Um, and a number of years ago, I went out to Tanzania. I was actually born in in Tanzania, and I was back there um, getting my birth certificate reissued was was one of the projects I had and I, I got the local business paper and I thought oh, I wonder whether they've got a stock market here and uh, sure enough they do um, you won't get a quote anywhere on Bloomberg or Reuters or anything like that because it's it's a, what's called a pre-frontier market mm. oh I like I like the sound of that me too that sounds amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's only about um I think there's only about 15 local companies listed, and then there's a few Kenyan uh, stocks that are, are dual listed there. But the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange is actually self-listed, so you can, you can buy shares in the stock exchange listed on the stock exchange. Uh, you know, there's a monopoly, and um, seems like a good sort of a long-term uh, bet, if you ask me. Tanzania's. Uh, got about 60 million people, um, huge natural resource endowment. Um, at the moment, it's run by a guy who's a bit of a lunatic, but many countries in the world seem to be. Um, and he he too shall pass. Uh, he He's not very well uh, regarded by the international aid donor community. And Tanzania has sort of been a darling of the aid donor community for a long time. But in my view, it, it might actually be time for a change. Um, you know, if you keep giving people handouts, they don't have any incentive to to sort of develop and, and do stuff themselves. And I, th- I think there's an interesting sort of cross current there where, where things are changing. Um, and just the demographics of places like that are, are what attract me. Um, you know, when I first started out in my own career, Asia was the place to be, and that's why I moved here. I mean, I, I moved to South Korea when I was um, a university graduate straight out of university in Australia. Uh, I moved to Seoul and, and started working in the financial markets there, and I've been in Asia ever since. But, it, you know, I've seen these countries develop and get rich inside one generation, South Korea, Taiwan, um, you know, China more latterly, and even places like Indonesia where I am now and, and the Philippines where I've lived before. You know, they're not desperately poor countries anymore. You know, the urban middle class are actually quite well off, still a lot of poverty out in, in the countryside and, and so on. But these countries are 
um, you know, much higher on the ladder than they were. Um, still places like Vietnam that are a bit earlier, Myanmar perhaps. But if you look at places in uh, in Africa, they're at a much earlier stage of, of development. And um, if you take the glass half full view, um, which is what I'm doing, I think that they have the potential to be you know, the next Asia, maybe not as quickly. Um, Africa has a problem of, you know, a lack of institutions. It, it's very much a, a, a big man or strong man culture where, you know, leaders sort of drag people along and you need the right leaders to do it. Uh, and once that leader goes, well, everything's kind of back to square one. There isn't a, a functioning sort of bureaucracy and institutional memory uh, the way there is in, in Western countries and to some extent in, in Asian countries as well. So that that's the one thing that's a bit of a question mark in my mind. But, um, you know, you, you can invest in, in things like building materials. Uh, I've invested personally in a cement company, you know, food and beverages, uh, basic financial services, telecoms, things like that. You know, you, you don't have to guess what's going to be the best AI software writing company for, you know, aged care robots the way you do in the Western Japan and, <laughs> and places like that. Um, is it, you know, you ask yourself, well, how did Buffett do well in the 50s and 60s in the US? Well, he bought basic businesses and um, that's kind of the, the thinking behind that. Uh, so I, I made a number of investments in in Tanzania in this pre-frontier market. Sounds scary, but it's not really. It's, it's quite refreshing really. It's quite old school. You know, you you find your, your broker. I, I got reading this local um, business newspaper and there was a column in there by one of the local brokers and there was an email at the end of it. I just emailed him and said, um, hey, you know, I saw your column. I noticed there's a stock market here. Are foreigners able to invest? And he said uh, in his reply email, yeah, sure, no problem. Would you like to open an account? And um, I sent a, a one-page form and a copy of my passport and that was that. You know, it wasn't really that difficult. Um, again, the the compliance hoops that you've got to, got to jump through in the West nowadays are just ridiculous. I mean, I've had Brokers in Hong Kong refused to open accounts for me for some reason that they wouldn't disclose. Uh, so none of that nonsense. Um, and yes, I have tested that I've been able to get my money out. You know, everyone always asks me that. You know, can you get your money back out? And not a problem at all. Current accounts open. Uh, you wire your money in. You buy your shares. If you sell some, I sold some recently. Um, more as a test than anything else, and I wired my money back out again to Hong Kong, and everything just functions quite smoothly. Um, but again, it's, it's not something you'll be able to do through a, a broker in the West or, or or buy a fund or anything like that. It's, it's really quite um, you know early stage and, and exotic, and you know you can make fifteen percent on government bonds there. The other thing I like to say to people: it's still nineteen eighty two in some countries. Um, you know you could buy government bonds and ride them up. You know, this whole sort of debt explosion and, and consumer debt expansion and all that sort of stuff hasn't even happened yet. Do you have a currency risk there? That's the one big one, yeah. You certainly do. Um, and I, the way I deal with that is that you, if you look historically, the currency depreciates, you know, not at a steady rate, but if you work it out, it's probably something like 3 4% a year. So you just have to build that into your... Um, investment metrics. So if you're looking for a 15% compound return uh, on your money, you, you probably need an 18 or 19% uh, hurdle rate, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, but it, it kind of goes in cycles. You know, they, they have long periods of stability, which is um, they're in a period like that now. Um, and then they might have a devaluation where the currency loses, you know, 20, 25% over a period of a year or two. But in a place like Tanzania, it's not nearly as um, exposed as places like Nigeria where, you know, it's an oil economy and when the oil market collapses, their currency collapses and that sort of thing. So, you know, I say Africa and I say Asia, but it's really a misnomer. I mean, it's the countries are so diverse uh, in, in these continents and Europe as well, I guess, that, um, you know, you really got to be looking at an individual country basis. Um, and then that macro filter is, is very much uh, a part of it before I, I dive into a market. Uh, that said, Nigeria is looking pretty interesting because it's quite bombed out. I, um, I put a little note up in another forum today that I contribute to that the um, 
Nigerian ETF. It's one of the few African markets where there is an ETF available uh, on US exchanges. Um, I think the discount to NAV was nearly 20%. And this is this is an ETF. You know, this is not supposed to happen. The market maker is supposed to make sure that the NAV and the um, the stock price are one and the same, right? So I guess there's some sort of a dislocation and people just don't want to be invested in Nigeria at the moment. Um, so interesting little things like that crop up from time to time as well. You're, t- you're touching on a, a theme that's, that's really interesting in relation to the, the landscape between private investors and institutional investors. One of the reasons why the Vietnamese market interested us and still does is because Vietnam at the moment counts as a frontier market. Um, But the thing is, as as people may not appreciate, if you're looking at a frontier market, then the, the institutional landscape is dominated by two indices, namely MSCI World for developed markets and MSCI Emerging for emerging markets. But the likes of Vietnam, and I dare say some of the countries you've already mentioned, don't even qualify. As you, you've already said, you've used the phrase pre-frontier. Well, if you're not, but if you're, but if you're not even a frontier market, you don't get into either MSCI World or MSCI Emerging. And what that means is, if those countries are on a route towards the, entering either of those indices, then institutional investors can't play, but private investors can. And it's one of the few advantages where private investors, which private investors really have over the big guys, is you can, you, you know. Private investors are not constrained by index composition or anything else. They can do exactly what the hell they like. And so the, the smart the smart thing is to get into one of these markets with real momentum and then buy it before the big guys have to buy it. And I don't know how long that necessarily takes, but if you're looking at an economy that's powering ahead, you know, whether it's resource, wealth, or you know, a friendly attitude towards business or all these different things that, that can affect, you know, a sort of progressive government that can affect an outlook. Um, get get in while the sun shines because the big guys are, are constrained by the nature of the you know the nature of the fund management business to be to be late to the party. That's right, and the valuations are um, therefore much lower. I mean, I've been buying um, the Tanzanian bank. I've I've got a position in as well, which earlier this year was on about two times forward earnings. I mean, it's quite ridiculous. I mean, I I don't dive into these things unknowingly. I mean, I've I've been on the ground in in Tanzania and met with companies, including this bank and Bank of Tanzania and and government people and whatever. I think I've made three trips in the last 18 months or so. Um, But the last time I was there was February last year. And I met with this particular bank, CRDB is the name of it. It's actually um, partly owned by the Danida, the Danish government's um, development agency, interestingly enough, which is how my parents were in um, Tanzania back in the day when I was born. You know, my father's Danish and, and he was out there on volunteer uh, service. Uh, but I, I met with that bank and I met with the other big bank, NMB, which is um, controlled by ABN AMRO out of um, the Netherlands. And um, you know, they were all saying, yes, you know, business is picking up, cycles turning, and you you didn't see that in the stock prices. Though. I mean, they were like totally bombed out. Um, and, you know, the nature of a, a banking cycle is that once it gets going and, and the trend's in motion, then, you know, it doesn't stop. It, it goes for years and years and years um, until everything, you know, goes crazy and bad loans start being made and, you know, then it collapses. Uh, but if you pick that, turning point which is the sense i got you know then you're really on a winner um and sure enough uh, the shares are up from you know 90 tanzanian shillings the low earlier in the year to um i think they were 140x dividend and the dividend was 17 so you know you're talking about a dividend of what 15 percent odd and the earnings multiple of you know two or three times um, so that goes to your point about the big institutions not having waded in, Tim. I mean, you know, they they just can't um, be in there because of their index constraints. And even if they could, the market capitalizations of these companies are too small to move the needle for most of the big guys. It's also it's also gratifying to hear that the currency is named the shilling. Now that's a yes. currency I can comfortably get behind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in, in Kenya as well, the Kenyan shilling, and uh, uh, Uganda as well, I think, yeah, the whole of East Africa, they, they do shillings. 
Do they have a central bank? Oh, yeah. I met with the guys in the central bank in, in Tanzania twice. Uh, they're all you know, very polished, got PhDs from uh, Western universities, some of them. And, um, you know, it's it, it, it's old school. You know, the, the economy there is, um, is still run in, in a way that is, is fiscally responsible. You, know? you just need to, they don't need to have a degree. They just need, they just, they just need to learn from the West, don't they? Just one bit of paper, cut rates. That's like whatever's going on. That's all you need to do. Job done. Well, you know, rates in um, in Tanzania. I think you can get about fourteen percent on a fifteen-year government bond at the moment, and inflation's only three or four percent. So you've got a very juicy real um, yield there. Unfortunately, the market is not open to guys like us. It's only for East African community citizens. Uh, but there's an interesting backdoor uh, way you can get some exposure because I, I mentioned the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange earlier had listed uh, itself on it on you know its own exchange. And it's not a very capital intensive business. Uh, and they raised all this money in the IPO that they didn't really need. And what they've done with it is basically bought a big government bond portfolio. Mm. So as a foreigner, you can own shares in, in the DSE and the DSE makes its money from, you know, listing fees and, and all the usual stuff that stock exchanges do and they've got a very, he very healthy business going. But then they've also got this huge um, lazy balance sheet invested in um, government bonds collecting dividends in the or interest payments in the teens. Uh, so it's, it's quite a solid um, investment, I think. <laughs> Do you think they'll deregulate and allow other countries to invest? Because that would be yeah, a good step. Yeah, so I actually asked the guys um, in the investment bank that each time I met them, and they are ready for it and they're all in favour of it. Um, but the government, the politicians are a bit reticent to do so. And the reason they cite is that some of the other countries in Africa that have deregulated and allowed sort of willy-nilly foreign investment, South Africa, for example, what tends to happen is that there's lots of hot money that comes in chasing the high yields, uh, you know, emerging market bonds funds, essentially. And when when they come in, it's great because they can fund their deficits and you know there's lots of money around to invest in improving the um, economy's capacity. But then something changes and all these funds sort of rush out again and then they leave a vacuum. Right. So the hot money flows in and out are what make um, you know a small place like Tanzania um, a bit nervous about completely deregulating. But I, I think it will happen because um, – you know they've they've got lots of people to employ and they've got lots of natural resources, but they don't have much capital. And the obvious answer, if you want capital to come in and um, you know boost your economy, is is to allow it. You know, open the doors and and it would rush in. I mean, you know, what would you rather have? Sort of nothing on on U.S. government bonds, or take a bit of a chance and um, get fifteen percent on Tanzanian ones. You know, it's obviously a a different risk profile. Um, but I know what I'd rather have. But you've also got um, Western companies that are looking to exploit the natural resources. So, for example, Kibo Energy is a company I've heard of that um, is is uh, is active in Tanzania, and uh, and therefore, th so they have some form of deregulation in terms of being able to invest in in projects there. But I suppose that must be a a kind of joint, yeah direct. Yeah. Um, direct investment is uh, open in most industries. There's a lot of Australian mining companies active uh, throughout Africa as well. Um, Tanzania sort of had a, a checkered history with that. Um, they're open to, to foreign investment in the mining sector in one presidential um, administration and then another president gets in and he decides he doesn't like it and you know raises a ruckus and, and wants to kick the foreigners out um so i'm a little bit wary of of you know that kind of space in in tanzania but there's definitely lots of natural resources there that um are ready to be uh mined gold is very much uh, a pillar of the economy there um and, you know, it's an interesting place because they're, they're an oil importer, uh, although there are natural gas reserves. Uh, so current oil price environment is great for them. They're a big uh, gold exporter, so that's great for them as well. 
Um, and then there are other big exporters, tourism services, and something like five of the top ten uh, tourist attractions in Africa are all in, in Tanzania, including Kilimanjaro and Zanzibar and Serengeti and, and Gorongoro Crater. And um, I think the old Dubai Gorge, sort of the cradle of, of civilization, is also there. Um, so that's obviously not so great at the moment. There's no tourists traveling there. Uh, but it, it's a fairly balanced economy, um, big agrarian sector as well. So you're right. There's a lot of foreign companies that have invested there. And my biggest investment's actually in a cement company that's listed on the Dar Salaam Exchange. But it's really a German company. You know, it's Heidelberg Cement's sort of Tanzanian subsidiary. And 29% of it's listed on the stock exchange and the other 71% is owned by um, Heidelberg Cement. Right. And they've got all their executives in there managing it. It's been around since the late 1960s. Uh, so you find this throughout Africa, actually, and there's still a few companies like this in Asia as well where there's a, a European multinational or an American multinational that set up a local um, branch or subsidiary and then listed it on the stock exchange. Um, you probably have this in Vietnam as well at the moment, Tim. I think uh, I had a mate who was in the insurance business there, and they have a great life insurance business in Vietnam, but they couldn't get their money out because of the um, capital controls that were still in place. All of the money that they were making, they couldn't take out of Vietnam. Uh, so they thought, well, what do we do? And they built a big uh, office building, and they listed their stock on the local stock exchange, and they sort of became a local company. Uh, and there are there are lots of instances of that of that throughout Africa uh, as well, sort of European multinationals that are listed on local exchanges, and you can essentially invest in that by buying it on the local exchange. Um, but you're in there as a minority holder, along with the European parent, um, you know, Nestle, for example, or. Cadbury chocolate in, in Nigeria. and BAT, I'm sure, have a few as well. Big time, there. yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and just to reiterate that, that that attractive point, that this is effectively a way of, of, of retail investors getting into emerging markets or frontier markets, but with the compliance and corporate governance oversight of a developed market parent in the process. So it's a lovely little, lovely compromised way, lovely compromised way of investing in emerging emerging markets. Exactly. And these multinationals, you know, they're, they're sort of good corporate citizens in the, in the countries where they operate and, and the governments, you know, they, they get lots of tax out of them and, you know, there's, there's sort of a symbiotic relationship. So you, you're not in danger of, of the, you know, African government sort of having an anti-foreigner crusade and coming along and nationalizing stuff um, because these things are, are part of the establishment and they've been around for, for decades and, um, you know, they're, they're a golden goose, as it were. So that that's how I, I view it anyway. <laughs> so if you um, – so you could think about maybe setting up an investment trust there as well, couldn't you, potentially? Yeah. So another investment that I have personally is actually in a Tanzanian investment trust, which yeah, that, that's what we would call a special situation, um, you know, amongst finance geeks that – it owns a large stake in the NMB bank that I mentioned um, a while ago, and the investment trust uh, was managed by a bunch of rogues in the past, and they got suspended from the stock exchange for not complying uh, with their um, you know, listing rules. So there's an example of a local company doing naughty things. Uh, so you, you're usually better off being in the multinational. Um, but what happened with this investment trust was it then came out of a suspension um, and relisted. But in the seven years that it had been suspended, the stake that it owns in the NMB bank had gone up massively in value. Um, and the investment trust had last traded at about 350 shillings a share. But I, I looked at it and I thought, well, hang on, this thing's worth 1,500 shillings. And they relisted it. And there was a, a sort of a prospectus, a relisting, relisting prospectus done, at, and they put a theoretical value on it of 650, but it relisted at 350. Wow. So I buying it and I it kept falling um, and it, it's recently traded at 170 uh, but I've just been buying it and buying it and buying it and I think I own just over one percent of it at the moment um, so 
who knows where that goes? Uh, but there are a couple of other listed investment trusts there as well um, that I've looked at. Um, but the locals, you know, they're they're really not into stock market investing much at all for. You know, obvious reasons. Lots of people don't have much spare money that they can uh, invest. Um, but even the the sort of wealthier people are, are far more comfortable in government bonds and, and real estate. Much much the same as in Asia, they they like to invest in real estate rather than stocks. And if they do play in stocks, it's more as sort of a casino gambling mentality than actual in, in investing. Uh, but I think over time, as more young people become educated on um, Stock market investing, you know, there, there could be a tailwind there as well. Um, so, yeah, going back to what I said before, uh, this sort of view that it's 1982 and, and government bond yields can only go down and demographics can only improve and, and money can only get saved and put into the stock market. I think there's a lot of sort of tailwinds that are potentially there. And even if just two or three of them come to pass, um, you know, it, it could be a, a lucrative long term proposition. And that's why I'm there. Do they have any uranium? In Tanzania? Not yeah. that I'm aware of, right. no. Okay. Um, that's over in sort of Namibia, Malawi. There's a the company a lot of my Australian friends have invested in recently. I actually know the MD um, in, in Malawi. They have a uranium deposit, uh, Lotus Resources, uh, it's called. Uh, and they've, they've bought one of Paladin's old projects in, in Malawi that they're bringing back into production. Uh, Malawi borders Tanzania. It's, it's in that Great Lakes region of Africa. But in Tanzania itself, I don't think there's been any uranium um, exploitation at this point. So if the virus hadn't hit and you had, let's paint some blue sky and imagine that your fund is up and running and it's fully funded, in terms of geography, how would you split up where you would be investing? Okay, so the the basic concept is to invest in. Uh, I, I don't really like the term frontier markets, but let's call it that. So it, it's markets that, like Tim Price was saying earlier, are not in these MSCI, EM, or or um, you know all world indices. And there's actually a map on on the uh, MSCI site where they show all the countries that are in and, and that are out. So it's basically all the ones that are not in the index. Um, that interests me, and predominantly they're in Africa. Like the only two countries in Africa that are in their indices um, from memory are South Africa and Egypt. Uh, so you've got all these other markets that are not in there, and not every African country has a, a stock exchange. Um, but my my emphasis would be on ex-British, com- ex-British colonies, so British Commonwealth countries, simply because I know the language, the language of business is um, English. You know, I can read stock exchange announcements without any problem. It's common law. It's all very familiar to me. Uh, but that said, markets like Vietnam and you know, uh, Uzbekistan, a lot of my friends are interested in uh, places like that. I, I just find them a little bit more difficult because then a, a different culture and different language and so on. So you, you probably need uh, local people helping you out on the ground. Whereas in Africa, I can do a lot of the preliminary work myself. And then obviously I go there and meet with, with locals. And uh, in, in Tanzania, I have quite a good relationship with a broker that I use and so on. Um but even you know, limiting yourself to to those English-speaking countries that are ex-British uh, colonies in Africa, there's uh, you know eight or nine of them, um, both in East Africa and Ghana and, and Nigeria over in the West. Um, and then the other thing I would say is there are also uh, companies listed in South Africa, London, uh, Australia, places like that where they derive most of their business from these African countries. Uh, so those would also be part of my universe. Um, there's, you know, there's even a real estate trust in, in London that's listed there that um, it's got a very interesting business model um, that they rent space to multinationals throughout Africa and their contracts are all in dollars or euros. Uh, so you, you eliminate the sort of local currency risk. Uh, so that's that's what I would be focusing on. Um, emphasis would be on um, on East Africa to begin with, I think, simply because that's where I've done most of the boots on the ground research so far. Uh, Kenya is quite a big market um, compared to Tanzania. And there's the odd um, 
odd gem in in Uganda and Rwanda as well. The brewery in in Rwanda is a stock that's on my shopping list. Uh, it's majority owned by Heineken, so it's one of these um, European multinational stories again. It's a bit too expensive at the moment. I'm you know, waiting for the price to come down before I pounce. Uh, but uh, you know, there's there's lots of things. Um, ready to buy uh, when the price is right, uh, if the fund gets up and running. So most of your day must be spent literally just trying to find, uh, sift through all this information to get these these opportunities, as well as obviously managing your current investments. Yeah, that's right. Um, I basically, uh, I mentioned earlier that I, I had studied history in, in university, so I, I take a lot of my methodology for, for research from my uh, study of history where I like to go to the primary source of information. I don't really read newspaper articles and analyst reports and things like that. I actually go to stock exchange websites and basically download announcements that companies have made and then try and sift through and, and basically educate myself uh, as to you know what's a good opportunity that way. It's time consuming, but um, you know, I'm not doing a whole lot else, so uh, I don't mind. Um, Basically, from first principles, that's the way I operate. Sounds very sensible. You've cut out the middle distortion, in fact. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's fun to read people's opinions on things, but if you're trying to do investment research, I find it can be more of a hindrance than a help, quite frankly. <laughs> well, especially when you're dealing with markets that aren't necessarily that well covered e- either. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot of research or anything out there available. You're quite right. When, what do you think the plans are for the fund? When, when do you think you will be bringing that back on the table? Uh, with a bit of luck, we'll be um, ready to do something by the fourth quarter. Great stuff. Well, Tim, let's go to Media Picks. What's yours for this week? Anything. Uh, the one I'm going to take is something I saw last night, which is um, a film that was out on, on one of the Sky channels called Tolkien, which ah, is just a, sort of a, a yeah. documentary, well, drama documentary about the life of the famous J.R.R., Tolkien, um, including his 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 early life, I think at King Edwards in uh, Birmingham, and then uh, at Oxford, and uh, I think it's Nicholas Holt who plays the man himself. Very a very very great, a very good performance indeed, um, and quite moving because there's a, a a lot of reference to the uh, the war in the trenches and the Somme, um, and that, that being behind what became the imagery of Middle Earth and the Hobbit and Et Al. Uh, just a, a nice quiet. You know, affecting little film. Brilliant. I may be wrong in saying that I thought the family didn't approve. I, li- I liked it. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, great. I mean, my daughter, uh, who's twelve, um, was a Harry Potter fan, but I had to sort of correct her and get her on the right path. Yeah, you have to. You have to get her off that. As far exactly. As and she, so she absolutely <laughs> loves Lord of the Rings, and uh, and yeah. So I'm, I'm pleased about that. And that's the thing about having kids that that you'll know about Tim S. You know, you've got. To, because obviously we can hear in the background, and it's it's yes, the, it's, yeah. it's the great thing that all the all the films from your past you can sort of start. Oh yeah, watch this! Like um, I was showing my daughter the uh, the Bill and Ted movies, and uh, there's one uh, com- yes. there's a new one coming out um, unbelievably uh-huh. this year. So I I went back and watched um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I have to say I I found it really good i found it very funny i mean of course it's dated and everything else but it's so if you're in in the mood for something light-hearted and silly then it's fantastic and of course then we went through all the rocky films up all the way up until creed 2 which i i think the creed films are absolutely excellent really well done so tim s what's your pick um i haven't been watching all that much lately, I must say. Um, but you you made reference to to your daughter. My oldest daughter's only four, going on five, and she's mad about. Um... She's in the perfect demographic for Bill and Ted, though. To be fair, <laughs> true. Yeah, I'll have to get her started on on stuff like that. Um, but she's she's quite a girly girl, and she's into princesses. And and Disney's Frozen is the one that captured her imagination some years ago. And I. Did go and see Frozen Two a while back. Uh, I noticed that there were um, some people in the finance industry commenting on Twitter that they haven't even, even seen it yet. So I'm, I'm one ahead of them. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, Disney's results were out uh, yesterday. I think, and um, they've sort of uh, 
hit a brick wall with some of their businesses, but then the others, um, you know, are, are doing well. They started their streaming service, and yeah, the amount of content that they have is is quite phenomenal. And I, I never really appreciated it until my daughter kind of got hooked on it. I mean, she's completely mesmerised by all these frozen characters, and, and and you know, she sings the songs, and so I, I started looking at Disney in a new light, um, and then thinking maybe it'd be a good long term investment if I could uh, pick the stock up low enough. Uh, I missed my chance back in March when it did briefly crash, but uh, you know, maybe I'll have another look. Content libraries is quite uh, quite impressive. She was watching Bambi the other day as well. But you're you're absolutely right to keep your eye on that sort of stuff because um, my wife mentioned this really funny cartoon that she really liked, and it was called Peppa Pig. And ah, yes. Yeah, and it's like for all parents, they'll know Peppa Pig. And of course, it went from nothing to being this this huge phenomenon and a very, very profitable company behind it. And so, you know, obviously, I, for some reason, I didn't invest in it, but I should have done. And it's uh, yeah. taught me to keep my eyes open in that regard. Um, but it was, it was, it's that they're actually very watchable. And I think the, the trick there is they make stuff for kids that adults can put up with. And if you get that right, then you're on to a winner. And then, of course... That's like, that's like the Simpsons model, isn't it? Because the Simpsons works on that I knew you were going to say that. That was yeah. what came to me too. Was, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it, it's it's quite a cult thing and there's all these subtexts and, and so on. Um, very cleverly done. And then you know it's all merchandising because it'll be frozen lunch bags and drinks and dresses yeah. and... And, yeah. and, you know, dolls and what have you. And it's like, that's really where they make all their money. And it was where the money was made with Star Wars. They made billions out of the, out of the contracts for the toys. It's, it's absolutely fascinating how it works. Um, but on that note, um, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And thank you so much for giving us such an insight into, into your investment process and where you indeed are investing. And we'd love to hear more about your fund when, when you're up and running. So if you yeah, could, could come I'd, back um, on, that'd be great. I'd love to come back on and, uh, you know, when it's up and running and then run people through it. And uh, apologies again for the slight background noise. Um, so who, who do we who do, who do we credit? What's the full full production credit for the... Uh, for the, for, the, for the guest appearance. That's Amara. Amara, yeah. Amara, lovely. Brilliant. Well, thank you once again and, uh, and, and all the best with your investments and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks very much, gents. Thank you so Enjoy much. Enjoy the rest Tim. of your day. You too. All thank the best. Bye. Bye. And thank you to my co-host, Tim Price. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And for all your likes and comments, until next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.